knowing that clients who may still be in a situation that isn't super safe, having them leave your office, you're kind of like, please don't go. (laughs) But understanding that that person does have the resources that they need and that, you know, even if something does happen, your office will still be there the week following and understanding that they do have what they need to take care of themselves and that they know their story best and they know themselves best. And welcome back to the You Need a Counselor podcast. Our quote this week is comes to us from our guest. The quote is, be who you needed when you were younger. And wow, that's a really, really powerful quote and a really, really powerful uh, message to live by and mantra to live by. So we're so excited to hear from our guest a lot more about what that means to her and how this way of thinking about life and service has really impacted her life. So my name is Julie Johnson. I am the president and founder of Heart and Solutions. We are a counseling agency here in Iowa. We are doing outpatient mental health therapy in our nine office locations. We're also doing telehealth service on the phone and over the computer, uh, as well as in-home and in-school behavioral health intervention services. And I'm Krista. I am the vice president at Heart and Solutions. So I am in charge of that behavioral health intervention specialist services um, that Julie was just talking about, where we go in home or do through telehealth or at school and meet with kids ages four to 18 on different behavioral skills and goals that they set. Um, And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So the mission of our podcast is that we are designed for people curious about counseling, but have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. Yeah, we post on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. So uh, you can get us on Spotify or anywhere that you listen to podcasts or on YouTube if you want to watch the entire video and see all of all of this loveliness <laughs> happening every single week. So uh, check us out Sunday nights, 5 p.m. Central. Uh, we also do post a little teaser video on Friday afternoons so that you can kind of check out what the episode is about and uh, bookmark your time for Sunday nights. Sunday nights, Chris and I are putting away our laundry when we listen to this podcast. So if that's you, if you don't want to put away your laundry during the week, don't do it. Put it away on Sunday nights while you listen to the podcast. That gives you the entire week to call your counselor, get scheduled with your counselor, or set up a new appointment for yourself. So today we are so excited because we've got a Heart and Solutions therapist here with us. So uh, we've got Melanie Dierichs here with us today. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. This is so exciting. So Melanie joins us from our Davenport office location, um, and we are located there in the CPRC, uh, the Child Protection Response Center uh, there in Davenport. And Melanie is one of the therapists. So if you listen to uh, our episode a few weeks ago with Becca, um, Melanie is one of the therapists that Becca actually uh, mentioned by name, (laughs) how wonderful it is to have a therapist there at the CPRC. Um, So I'm going to brag on Melanie a little bit, and then I'm going to just let her tell you her story. Um, So Melanie is a a person who kind of grew up with a a mom in the social services field, but kind of saw one aspect of social work and was like, that's not really for me (laughs) and was not super excited about social work until learning about all of the different ways that a social worker can help children, adults, families, um, and especially those, uh, those populations in our society and in our, uh, our communities that are the most vulnerable populations. Um, Melanie really, really has a heart for social justice, for making sure that people who may be overlooked in our societies or may not be treated with the rights that, they're, that they deserve, um, that she is an advocate for every single person uh, in our community. So um, it's just really great having Melanie here today. Um, and Gosh, Melanie works with kids 
and with adults. Um, and so, and that really has been uh, what, what drove her to this counseling field is being able to make a difference in the lives of children. Um, Melanie is also a member of the Quad Cities Black Lives Matter support group. Um, so we are very, very excited to hear more about that as well. So Melanie, can you tell us about Quad City Black Lives Matter support group? Yeah, so um, I will give a shout out to Shannon McNeil. She um, is actually a graduate of Assumption High School um, out here in Davenport, and she's a, a student at the University of Iowa. Um, and she and some of her friends got together shortly after the murder of George Floyd and really wanted to provide a space for people to learn. I think a lot of times people who may not be super familiar with this topic and just the hardships that, you know, Black Americans face every day, they feel hesitant to try to engage in this dialogue and fear that they will be spoken down to or just feel they don't really have a place. So we really have banded together to try to provide a lot of education and a safe space for everyone um, of different backgrounds to speak. So I think what attracted me to this group is, you know, I, I was in early high school with the passing of Trayvon Martin. And I remember kind of feeling like very out of place in that I felt like this, like he was a child, he was my age, he, I, I wasn't really understanding how the conversation was so quickly just kind of shoot away. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really have tried to make it a mission of mine and my work to try to be an active ally and really learn ways I can do that to the best of my ability. A lot of what um, I focused on in my undergraduate education was the intersection of race and the criminal justice system and just mm. the disparities within that. I just love studying the topic. I love trying to find ways that I can use my privilege and my voice to um, help amplify the lived experiences. And I think this group is an awesome way I'm able to do that. Very cool. And is this a, so is this group an online kind of group where you can get involved online? Or do you guys have meetings where you get together and do support? How, how does somebody get involved uh, yeah. in this group? So we started, I believe we had one in-person meeting. We all met outdoors at Vanderveer Park and we're basically talking about like the general vocabulary. So like covering microaggressions and all of the mm. definitions people may not be incredibly familiar with. And then mm. due to the increase in COVID cases, we shifted to completely virtual. So we've had um, our core leadership team has created um, events where people can attend via Zoom. Uh, and there's a topic we talk about. We watch videos, we have discussion questions, and really just kind of use that time for people to decompress as well, just because it, it does feel like, you know, we could be talking about one thing and then something else happens so shortly after. And mm. I know this past summer was incredibly hard for a lot of people involved. So I think for a lot of people, it just gave them a safe space to decompress with people who may be sharing some of the same feelings they have. So I think this month, at the end of the month, we have a Facebook page uh, called QC Black Lives Matter Support Group. We are trying to do a virtual event over black exploitation and the impact that that has had mm. and just, you know, mainstream media and kind of the controversial road it's taken. So I'm really excited to learn more about that and, um, get more conversations starting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about, about that? And um, I, I know you guys are, are kind of just having the conversations, but it, it seems like it's just so great that there, that there is a, a support group where people can have conversations about, 
race and about culture mm-hmm. and about society. Like, I think that people, this is what, and you seem to just be very interested in topics that people don't normally like to talk about. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you want to have a, a hard conversation or like a potentially yes. awkward conversation, <laughs> um, go to Melanie <laughs> yes. because, you know, like you, you, you are interested in working with, uh, with people who have experienced trauma. You're interested in working and advocating for people who have experienced racial disparity, who have experienced oppression, um, and who have experienced just inequality in life. And there is, I think you kind of identified, I think sometimes, and I experienced this, you know, I'm, so I'm Asian American, I'm Korean, and I experience this all the time where people like don't know what to say to me. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, and they're so, sometimes people are so afraid to have a conversation like that. Um, or even to say like, oh, what nationality are you? People are afraid to do it. They're like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to say, are you Chinese? Like nobody, right. <laughs> no, people know like what the wrong things to say are sometimes, but at the same time, like they don't know what to say. And so a group like this where, you know, it is a safe, place and where you can you can say uh kind of what you're thinking because everybody's goal is to better understand everybody's goal in this group is to further educate ourselves uh as to what's happening so I love that can you tell us more about microaggressions yeah so I mean I obviously don't experience them just being you know a cis white woman but microaggressions I think at least in my group that I was having that day. Um, it was, I think the majority of us were white. There were a few people of color, but even just everyday things. And like, even if, you know, you're walking down the street and you see someone cross the street because they maybe see like a black man walking down the street. And it's, it's little things that we don't realize are harmful because they are conditioned in us from such a young age. Um, Microaggressions can be, if I have a client who may have a name that may be harder for me to pronounce, like asking, oh, can I just call you this? And like, not their actual Mm -hmm. name. Mm -hmm. That's something that I think happens to everyone (laughs) who doesn't tend to have, um, the most uh, Eurocentric names. Mm. So I think even things like that, people of color notice from such a young age and just have to adapt to, which I don't think they should have to adapt to it. I think we as you know, white people should be willing to learn and not even be tolerant, but accepting and nurturing of diversity and I think we've gotten further than we have been in terms of inclusion, but we have such a long, long way to go. Um, so I, I really found it interesting to hear a lot of the experiences within that group of microaggressions and like how early they picked up on it just because I don't, I don't think I was ever that self-aware or aware of my surroundings when I was that age. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really interesting. And it's something that you constantly have to reflect on every day in order mm-hmm. to break the habit. And in terms of like the uncomfortable conversations, I, I was even talking to my brother because he, he's actually an educator in Davenport and he he did tend to be a little more passive than I was surrounding just the advocacy this past summer. And I had a conversation with him and he was like, I just don't know how to have these conversations because Mm. we grew up in a very, very white rural community. So it was just a matter of not being exposed or really being taught anything different. And Mm -hmm. I think people, once they feel that discomfort, they immediately drop it and run away where you have to feel that discomfort. That is part of acknowledging privilege and really understanding that ignorance is bliss and that, you know, through living this way and refusing to acknowledge reality as it is, it's Mm -hmm. actually so much more harmful 
to you know people who are being oppressed by this system Mm -hmm. and it's it's not doing anyone any good Mm -hmm. so I think discomfort is a huge pillar and change in any way you just kind of have to work through it Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting about discomfort being necessary you know and and we Mm -hmm. do like things that don't make us feel comfortable like we're outside of our little bubble of you know comfort and it's like oh I don't you know it's if you tell me say the ABCs I I can do that very comfortably right Mm -hmm. but in terms of there's certain conversations that it is harder for people especially if we're coming from a place of privilege and going I have no idea what this means right and so even trying to uh, I think even people who are empathetic, right? And who go, okay, I don't want other people to have, uh, to have injustice in their lives. Like, I don't want other people to have these microaggressions in their lives, but like, I don't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know what it means sometimes because like you said, and I love hearing you say, I, you know, when you say I haven't experienced that, like I didn't as a child grow up thinking these things are having these things happen to me. Um, it, you know, and I, I understand that like Black's life, Black Lives Matter, to me, um, I know that it says Black Lives, but to me, it's not just about Black people. It's not just about African-American people. It's everybody who is experiencing um, un- like things that are not fair, things that are mm-hmm. dehumanize us as a person um, or take away from our individual personality and who we are by by blocking us off in some way because of something to that we are right right Um, and so you know I think that sometimes people get caught up in like well Black Lives Matter is is the the name of the organization but really what it is is that like because we can understand that the things that happened to black people this summer were not okay for us to be able to say that um is is huge I think and you know I sometimes I get a little bit like "Mm." so as an Asian American it's hard for me sometimes because it's like in some ways I feel like I understand and then in some ways it's like I know that I don't but Mm. I think for me as an Asian American it's like but I feel like I kind of understand a little bit more than maybe some like Caucasian people. Like I understand better than my husband does, you know what I mean? But then it's like, I'm in a gray area where it's like, I don't want to say I do understand because I probably don't fully understand, but I know I understand better than Joe. (laughs) And, um, and so like when you talk about microaggressions growing up, I mean, I remember when I was in elementary school, um, the, and, and we had a, fa- I grew up in Massachusetts. We had a fair amount of Asian kids in my school, um, but definitely we were the minority. And, uh, and I remember like the stereotypes were like, well, they're Asian, so they're smart and they're skinny. And so it was like, and I remember like, I was not a skinny kid. Okay. I will say like, I was not that stereotype, but it was like the fact that that's the stereotype. And then I wasn't that stereotype made it like, all the more pronounced that I wasn't a skinny kid. Um, And then also like, you know, when I, so we had like, I think in Iowa, they called it talented and gifted. We had, we had like sage, right? And so I was in that when I was in elementary school. And I remember when I tested into that and our school did not a great job, sorry, Hemingway, um, did not a great job of like announce, they like announced this in a big thing. And I remember kids being like, well, yeah, she's smart because she's, she's Asian. <laughs> and going like, oh, maybe that is why I got into this program, you know? And so, and that was, gosh, that was like first grade, you know, I was six. Um, my kid is two years younger than that right now, which is just like blows my mind. Um, but they start so early. Um, and the idea that, yeah, if I'm, if I'm a black man and I see somebody like lock their car door when I'm around, right. Or like not want to walk, not want me to walk behind them. Um, those, those are things that it's like, it takes away the connection or the possible connection that I have to that fellow human being, Mm -hmm. um, because there is fear now between us. Like, you are showing that you have fear of me, not because of who I am, but just because of like, I'm male and I'm black. Like that's 
why you have fear of me, but now I have fear of you. Like if somebody has fear of me and I don't know if I am safe now because they do have fear of me, like I have fear of that person. And now there's fear in between us instead of human connection. Um, and I think that, you know, for, for your group being able to, to go, okay, what are microaggressions? And like, what are these things that we're, we're saying and, and doing, and are we, are we being advocates for, you know, eliminating some of these things? I think that's just so awesome. Yeah. Tell me a little bit. So we started with this quote of be who you needed when you were a child. Can you tell us about what does that quote mean to you? Yeah. So I, I believe I was probably in my junior year of college when I first saw this quote and it, it just resonated with me in a way that no quote has before. Mm. Um, so I actually grew up with a single parent. Um, my other parents struggled with addiction issues, so they were not able to be a healthy and present parent. And um, just, I always felt very different um, growing up just, you know, in a middle-class community where, you know, I'd stay at my parents or at my friend's house and they'd have two parents and, you know, just not be in a lower socioeconomic status. And um, just a lot of the experiences I've been through throughout my life, um, a lot of people haven't had to go through. Just feel like if I would have had someone to kind of guide me through that as best as they could, it would have made a difference for me. And I really strive to be that for other people. Um, and that's really what has pushed me to work with kids. Cause um, when I originally started, I actually, my first graduate uh, field placement was in survivor services. So working with survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence, I have worked with kids before in like preschool setting. I love kids, but I absolutely refused to work with them in survivor services. I just, I knew, or I had thought I knew that I just couldn't handle it um, until I had to. Uh, I actually, part of that internship was going on out calls to hospitals. So if someone shows up and is in need of like um, a sexual assault evidence kit, or um, there's been a domestic incident that they disclosed, just kind of offering them services and being with them so they don't have to be through it alone. My first time was for a seven-year-old little girl. Um, and so that was immersion therapy for sure for me, but it has by far been one of the most shaping experiences I've had as a um, as a provider, I was blessed to be able to have a great relationship with her therapist and actually kind of sit in on her therapy sessions and really see what um, that kind of therapy with kids looked like or what it could be. And that's just kind of where I found my home. I really love working with kids who have experienced abuse or have experienced um, growing up with a parent incarcerated or struggling with addiction. I, I really want to be that stable person that, you know, they can come to my office even once a week and just breathe and get to be a kid. Mm -hmm. And I love that Heart and Solutions gives me the opportunity to do that. And I think being you know, so closely connected to the Child Protective Response Center has provided me with some really strengthening skills I didn't have before. It's definitely difficult at times. And a lot of times I do cry mm -hmm. when I, you know, they leave my office, but yes. it, I think it makes me a better person and it makes me able to keep going and provide for the next person, no matter what they've been through. And I think in relation to this too, even working with adults who are ready to heal from some of their childhood traumas, I, I really strive to be that person for them as well. And 
reassuring them that, you know, it's, it wasn't their fault and really trying to help them find their way in healing, I think is something that I'm so appreciative of every day. It's so interesting because as, as counselors and, you know, if anybody's listening to this and they're kind of on the fence about counselors, sometimes there's this idea that like, they won't understand, like nobody will, will understand. And what you're, what you're describing in terms of like your initial kind of, um, reaction of no, I, because I've experienced that, I Mm -hmm. I don't want to work with children that have experienced that. Um, and that kind of initial resistance there to that. And then there's, there's that, it's like a a switch flipped and you said, no, because I've experienced that. That's why I do want to work with kids who have experienced that because I know that I know what I needed. I know that if a supportive person who was going to listen to me and validate me and try to understand what I was going through, if, if a person, an imperfect person (laughs) like that did their best. And so I love how you described it with like, if they, if they tried to the best that they could. Right. And so it doesn't have to be a perfect person who's had exactly the same experience, but just that knowledge that, Hey, if I had somebody, an adult in my life, who was a caring, supportive adult, who was willing to listen to me, Mm-hmm. It would have made all the difference um, in my life. And I get to do that for other kids who have no other adults able to do that for them. Um, and I think that that's just amazing. And how, how motivating that you were able to, you know, your, your experience could have hindered you from helping those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were able to, to look at it from this new perspective and see this quote and go, no, that's why, that's why I need to, to be helping, um, is just amazing. So you're primarily working with children now and some adults who, uh, may have experienced childhood trauma as well. Um, and so has that always been your, your main, uh, interest is, uh, working with I know you're very interested in working with kids, but what about adults who have experienced trauma in childhood? Um, How did that kind of come about? Yeah, so I actually started working with adults when I did, you know, start my internships. Um, It was more so in the advocacy role of um, a lot of legal advocacy and helping people get orders of protection and stuff like that. And I just kind of going back to, being interested in populations that people aren't the most comfortable with. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, I found something so genuine and being with people hours after something awful happened to them. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I just, my heart kind of lived in that place of being with someone at their most vulnerable and really Mm -hmm. just helping them figure out, you know, what's the next step. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have really enjoyed working with adults who are currently healing from trauma um, or are ready to maybe look at some of the childhood experiences they've had that they realize now were traumatic. You know, I feel my own therapeutic journey, I I was one of them. I really didn't have consistent therapy growing up. And then I put myself in therapy when I think I was 19 because I, I I did kind of start realizing some things. So I, I feel I can really connect with them in that way of Mm -hmm. being with them in kind of that beginning process of realizing like, huh, this is why I've always done this. And this is why I have this reaction to this and Mm. just being with them and helping them identify some of the triggers that they may not have known. And even just processing the event itself, um, just because with a lot of adults with childhood trauma, um, sexual abuse specifically, uh, I have quite a few clients 
in that realm, there are so many repressed memories. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's interesting to see how we kind of shift into that child mind again while processing it. And I, I love getting to work with them where they are in that sense of getting their inner child to understand and feel validated and then learning, Mm. you know, as their present self, what it looks like to acknowledge that I am a survivor of any kind of trauma and learning, you know, this doesn't define me, but it is part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And this is how I can then go on living, you know, with that. And it sounds like, you know, so when you're working with children who have experienced trauma or you're working with adults who have experienced trauma you're in both ways you're you're working with those those same experiences whether they were a child when they experienced it or whether they were an adult Um, and it's just beautiful how you've been able to uh, experience therapy and and say hey I, I want to I want to try this because there are things happening or I'm you know I'm having thoughts or I'm having actions or outcomes or feelings that like aren't serving me. Right. And what is that? And so being able to, to, uh, at the age of 19 say, no, I'm going to try, I'm going to try therapy. I'm going to try counseling. Um, that's amazing. And then here you are as a counselor (laughs) working with, with other people who are kind of on that same, uh, journey, uh, to healing. Yes. Therapy has, played a huge role in my life and I never thought it would. Uh, I don't know if I ever thought I would turn out to be a therapist, but it's, it's had such a wonderful impact on my life, both as a professional and just as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I always, <laughs> do you ever watch Good Girls? Have you guys watched yes. that on Netflix? There's an there's an episode where I tried to take a screenshot and Netflix will not let you screenshot. <laughs> but there's a part where uh, the the younger sister she goes to the um, she goes to a therapist. She has a negative experience and then she yells to her kid, "You know who needs therapists? Therapists!" And I wanted to screenshot that so badly. <laughs> Because it's so true. It's not that, you know, we, we all need therapists. It's that everybody can benefit from a therapist. And uh, a lot of times, you know, people think, well, you are a therapist. You don't need a therapist. It's like, no, I, I know that it works. If I didn't think it worked, I wouldn't be in this field. You right. know, there's, there would be no point to being in this field if I didn't know that therapy works and believe in it a hundred percent. And it's just amazing your journey uh, from, you know, somebody who was wanting to overcome some experiences and overcome some, uh, some previous beliefs and, and thoughts and, and actions, and then coming through and going, yeah, I, I let me help other people mm-hmm. through this because I know that it's hard. I know that it's a struggle and a challenge to start. Ah, so you were in an advocacy role um, with adults working with um, survivors who had just experienced a traumatic event, so a sexual mm-hmm. assault um, or a rape. And so from that kind of uh, way of helping people to now being a therapist where now you're meeting with people weekly uh, or, or every other week, that's kind of a different role than, than kind of that first support person that's there and saying, here are your options. And, you know, here's what could happen next, Mm -hmm. you know, all of those things, just trying to, to kind of keep the person safe, first of all, and making sure they feel safe and heard. Um, but then going into that kind of longer term counseling experience, um, how has that shift been for you? Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a shift. Um, going from kind of that crisis intervention mindset of establishing safety uh, and making sure they're in a safe place or they have an escape route and that kind of thing um, to understanding that, you know, my role right now is to help with their healing, which I've, I've loved that transition. And it, it did take a little bit though, to understand that 
you know, that that wasn't my job anymore. And that, you know, they did have someone doing that. So I kind of needed to take a back seat. Uh, but I think it's, while it's been kind of a difficult one, I think I, I managed it pretty well. Um, and it's, it's just, and you guys can maybe relate to this as well, but knowing that clients who may still be in a situation that isn't super safe, having them leave your office, you're kind of like, please don't go. (laughs) But understanding that that person does have the resources that they need. And that, you know, even if something does happen, your office will still be there the week, you know, following and understanding that they do have what they need to take care of themselves and that they know their story best and they know themselves best. Mm. So I think kind of cognitively correcting that, um, I don't want to say helicopter parent, but like (laughs) kind of that protective role in me has been um, something that I had to get used to, but I think it's, I'm in a good place with it. Absolutely. I love that. I mean, if anybody's listening and kind of thinking about, you know, go starting counseling and knowing that, Hey, I've had some traumatic experiences. And so I'd like to start. I, I feel like with trauma, there are so many situations where our, our power has just been completely taken away. And then for certain, sometimes in certain kinds of treatment, it feels like, okay, my powers, any power that I still had is, is being taken away even more. And I think from a clinician side, the, the fact that you are recognizing that, oh my gosh, I want to keep my clients safe so badly. I want them to be happy and joyful and experience all of the things. And to be able to say like, but even something like happiness or even something like freedom or safety is still every person's choice to, to make. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes safety to us is not safety to that person, right? Like physical safety is not always psychological safety. Um, and so we might look at it and go, Oh, physical safety, (laughs) do Mm -hmm. that. Right. But for the client, it's like, no psychological safety, right. Is, is more pressing is screaming louder, uh, in that moment. And for, for you as a counselor to go, okay, as a person, I really want to make this choice for you, right? Like, I really want you to, to do this or that, or to, you know, help you stay safe or happy in the way that, that I want for you. Uh, it's allowing every client that walks in and walks out at the office to know that they have their own life and their own journey. And we don't get to decide that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that because it is so tempting, um, as a counselor, and especially, I, you know, what you're touching on, it, you're hitting the nail right on the head. Because I, I used to do um, crisis intervention and counseling. I was an on-call um, just as a volunteer on the weekends, and so, and I was also practicing therapist. And so I would have some overlap sometimes um, where I'd get a call, I'd go meet with somebody in the hospital. And then the next week they'd be referred uh, for counseling. I'm in a small town. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the need to take off one hat and put on another um, was, was such a transition. And I love how you're, you identify, you know, this, it, it is a different role and both are so important. And, you know, when you're doing your therapeutic role, uh, that could mean that you and the client don't talk about the trauma for like weeks at a time, months at a time, you don't talk Mm -hmm. about it. Right. And that's still okay. Um, I think that's so important for anybody who's on the fence about counseling to hear is that even if you've got trauma, trauma in your history, or if you've recently experienced a trauma, you can go to a counselor still make progress in counseling, still work with that counselor and only process that trauma when you're ready to process it. Um, I think that's so important for people to hear because sometimes there's this sense of like, well, I go to the doctor when my leg is broken. So I go to a counselor when I've had trauma and they're supposed to fix it. It's like, 
No, it's when you are ready to process that through. Um, and fixing it means totally different things uh, to everybody. Whereas like medical model, yeah, I break my leg, give me a cast, right? So mm -hmm. I think we, um, there is kind of that, that thought process sometimes. So that's such an important point, Melanie. I love that. Do you ever feel, do you ever see um, barriers to starting counseling um, for people who maybe are interacting with a, an advocate, maybe they're um, safety planning to leave a domestic violence situation, maybe they're safety planning to, uh, to live in a, a safer environment, something like that. Do you ever, are there barriers to counseling that you identify there that you've experienced? Yes. Um, I think for a lot of people who may be in that situation with domestic violence in particular, they are a lot of times under the same insurance. Um, so billing wise, their perpetrator could potentially be, you know, able to locate them or know that they're going to this place. Or um, even I was doing a referral earlier and I I'm still in the automatic um, tendency when asking, can I leave a detailed message? I say, is this a safe number to leave a message on? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of times people who may be in the therapeutic role don't think about like, oh, maybe the perpetrator has access to their phone or, mm -hmm. you know, just things like that, trying to coordinate is are my actions in helping this person putting them at risk um, because a lot of times in trying to coordinate services there are gaps so we we can't get them in as soon as we want to so really ensuring that my actions are minimizing the potential impact it could have on their safety um, I also think transportation has been a huge one that I run into quite a bit so we have to be pretty creative in scheduling and trying to coordinate, you know, my sister has this day off and Melanie may have this time available. So barriers like scheduling insurance wise, um, even getting letters sent to a different residence or mailing address is mm -hmm. something that I often run into. So a lot of times people I'll recommend like even open a PO box, like just, just a safe space to get this information is helpful in trying to help deescalate those kinds of situations and barriers. And I think a huge barrier, even if someone is in a, an actively violent situation or not is just is this therapist going to ask me why I haven't left yet or why I didn't leave? Mm -hmm. yeah. That I think is the most overarching fear mm -hmm. and barrier a lot of survivors face. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer to that is a, a good therapist will never ask you that because it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not someone's job to ask that. It's not their job to judge you. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't know your experience. They don't know the situation. And something I often tell people when they do express that fear to me is you fell in love with this person for a reason in the first place. You know, if you would have known that it would have ended like this, you wouldn't have gotten this far, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think just the fear of judgment is a huge barrier mm. in both, you know, people surviving domestic violence or sexual assault, is, you know, what were you wearing that just, just the very insensitive comments that they get on a daily basis, mm -hmm. which, you know, in the therapeutic setting, those, those types of questions should never be asked. They should never even be you know, thought about by a practitioner, because it's not, it's not your, our job to judge, it's our job to validate them and help them in healing. Absolutely. I think that's such a, a great point about fear of judgment being a barrier to, wow, my hair. Okay, sorry. Um, of, fear of judgment being a really a 
very, very real barrier to starting counseling. Starting counseling is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, you are sharing and you come into the assessment, you are asked a lot of personal questions about your situation and, and uh, your family and, and all of that. And it is a vulnerable place to be. And, you know, a lot of healing does require that we be vulnerable and that we be able to express exactly what we're feeling and express exactly what we're experiencing. Um, But in order to be able to do that, we have to feel safe in that session. uh, And we have to be able to know that this, this person is not going to have uh, preconceived ideas about me because of my situation. Um, and that question of, yeah, why do you stay? Oh my gosh. That is, even when you said it, it was like, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Right. Um, it's, oh my gosh, because there are, there are infinite re- answers to that question. And like you said, none of them matter for the therapeutic mm-hmm. Um, the therapeutic, therapeutic process is about what that person is now experiencing and how that person is feeling about what is going on around them. And part of the things that uh, that person may be having uncomfortable feelings about is other people's judgment about their relationship and about their situation. Um, so I, I run a, a nonprofit, it's a very, very small nonprofit, but um, I run it with my daughter and it's called DV Pet Solutions. And, uh, and we started it because we were finding that there were, when I would do safety planning at crisis intervention, a lot of times in the safety plan, we would come across, what about my pets? And in Iowa, that's not even what about my dog and cat? That's what about my goats? Like, what about my chickens? Like, this is, I mean, this is not something that Massachusetts has a lot of, but in Iowa, it is like, what about my horses, you know? And, um, and the idea that an abuser will, can and will use uh, animals, children uh, for manipulation and for retaliation and knowing that, well, yes, maybe I, maybe I would want to leave, but could I leave my cats behind knowing that they would be killed um, or knowing that they'd be put outside. They don't have claws, you know, or it, to me, it's, I might get some flack for saying that animals are like children, but to me, <laughs> like, yeah. like my kids, yeah. like, you know, I, I have a kid and I have two cats and like, I wouldn't leave my kid with an abuser and I wouldn't leave my cats with an abuser. Um, I just wouldn't. And if there's financial abuse happening, which so many people do not understand about financial abuse whatsoever. Um, And so there's this idea that, yeah, in, in my situation with my, you know, I have a checking account, I have a debit card, I could go and stay at a hotel or I could go stay with my parents. Well, what if my parents are just as abusive? You know, what if my partner is financially abusive? And so I don't have a debit card. I get, you know, I get $20 to go to the grocery store and I need to bring back a receipt and change um, Mm -hmm. for any shopping that I do. Right. And so there's, there's, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you were talking about privilege. Um, And I think that privilege comes into the conversation when it comes to racial disparity and racial injustice. And it also comes in when it comes to um, domestic violence situations, because there, there is a privilege that creates the judgment, I think, right? Like anytime there's judgment, um, about a about a person like why did why isn't this person leaving like that their partner is terrible to them why did they stay if there's judgment in that it comes from privilege it comes from the idea that well I would get on my cell phone and call 911 okay if you're in an abusive relationship you probably don't have a cell phone because isolation is such a big part of that abusive relationship mm-hmm. um so can you just get on your cell phone and call 911 and if you do then what's going to happen, right? Are you still going to be safe? Are you going to have a place to go? Um, and what about your kids? And what about your pets? And what about your home that you've, you know, spent your entire life in? Just all of these different pieces that I think when there's any judgment, it shows a lack of understanding that these are real pieces of the abuse. The, the abuse itself is what makes it difficult to leave, not the person that's experiencing the abuse, 
Um, and I think there's just such a, sorry, I feel like I'm on a soapbox right now, but no. there's, there's just such a, uh, a misunderstanding about domestic violence um, and intimate partner violence, especially, um, and, and financial abuse is such a real thing. And I, it's, a, it's a term that isn't in most people's vocabulary. They don't understand what that is, um, but it's so important. So yeah, I, I think it's amazing what you're doing. And it's, I think it's amazing that you've, uh, you've been able to, you know, work with, work with children, work with adults who've experienced trauma, work with adults who are, um, who are doing like you, like you are, and, you know, saying, I'm going to invest in myself, I'm going to go to counseling, I'm going to start this process. And as long or as short as that process takes or is, um, I'm still going to have the benefit of that supportive person in my life. I deserve that. Um, and the children that you're serving, they deserve that. It's just, it's amazing way to look at um, service and, and the way that we support the people around us and in our lives. I'm Melanie Dierks and I need a counselor. That's right. Me too. So does Krista. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. <laughs> Awesome. All right. So if you are interested in uh, starting therapy with Melanie, if you are in the Quad Cities area, Davenport area, um, adults, children. So if you've got kiddos that you think would benefit from having um, that supportive person. And it's not to say that you as a parent are not supportive, but like you're their parent. So. <laughs> So, you know, my parents were, my, my mom's super supportive, but like, she's my mom, okay? So we need that external person um, to really hear us. So if you're interested in getting signed up for services with Melanie, um, give us a call, 800-531-4236. Like Julie mentioned at the beginning, we post every Sunday night at five. So save up your laundry, do it with us while you listen to the newest episode um, or prepare yourself for Monday morning to call a counselor yourself um, or to schedule for your appointment that week if you hadn't yet. And uh, feel free to send us questions. So if you've got questions uh, or if you need resources um, that you think that Melanie can help with, give us a, send us a message on Facebook Messenger at You Need a Counselor Podcast or on Instagram at You Need a Counselor. Because uh, Melanie, we would love to have you back on the show again. I feel like we could have filled a whole another episode. Um, and so if you send us questions for Melanie on there, we'll have Melanie back on and we'll ask her those questions on the podcast. All right, I'm Krista Brown. And I'm Julie Johnson, and we need a counselor. And so do you. Bye.